Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nuree Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining me as I discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. Kayla Branch is on furlough this week. She'll be back next week while I'll be off for seven days on furlough. Uh, Unfortunately, the Oklahoman has not been exempt from the economic hardships many businesses are facing during this pandemic. We appreciate your patience with us as we try to adjust. For this week's podcast, state officials predict major revenue shortfalls for the next three fiscal years, and the price of a barrel of oil drops below zero. Joining me now is reporter Carmen Foreman, who's had a busy week covering the state government. It seems Oklahoma has a pretty dire economic outlook this fiscal year and next year. Carmen, what kind of revenue shortfalls are we facing? Yeah, um, great question. Um, So this year, and and when we're talking about year, we're not talking, you know, January through December. We're talking fiscal year. So it's Um, July 1 through the end of June. And so the current year that we're in, which we only have a couple more months of, um, earlier this week, the State um, Board of Equalization, which is this really high-level, nerdy-sounding board that is chaired by the governor, um, they declared a revenue shortfall of approximately $416 million dollars. And they they certified that number, and that allows um, state lawmakers to tap into reserve accounts to fill that budget hole. But the budget shortfall for next year looks um, is estimated to be even worse. Um, they're forecasting that it's going to be about one point three billion dollars, um, and that's sort of an early projection. Um, And of course, you know, everything with oil and the COVID-19 situation is still developing. So that number could get worse. It could get better if if unemployment goes down, if more people are able to go back to work. Um, It's just sort of up in the air for now. Yeah, Carmen, and you just started touching on exactly what I wanted to ask about next was what are the biggest causes of this budget crisis? And I think obviously COVID-19 is a big driving factor for this, but specifically, how is that causing state revenues to fall short? What what are the necessary funds that we're simply not pulling in the same amount of money anymore? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's like a lot of different funds. Um, think of most everything that a state government would have to spend uh, and think that it's just less than it should be or normally would be, right? So there's sales taxes. Um, People aren't going out and spending as much money. They're not going out to eat as much. Um, And so that means less sales tax revenue. Um, The casinos are closed right now because of social distancing. And so that gaming revenue, which of course, you know, is still in dispute, but that gaming revenue that would be going to the state and would be used to pay for education type stuff, mostly um, 
that's going to be less than it normally would be. Um, the federal government pushed back the income tax deadline to July 15th. So normally you have to um, file your taxes by April 15th. And if you owe taxes, you have to pay it by that time. But considering the current events right now, um, they push back the, that deadline three months. So all that income tax revenue that the state was supposed to get from corporations and individuals, they won't get until the next fiscal year, which you know might help them a little bit in the next fiscal year, but hurts us now. Um, so it's just everything like that. Um, and it's, it, you know, I don't envy them at all. It's a complicated situation. <laughs> um, and then of course our big source of revenue would be oil and natural gas. And, um, it, it was really interesting in a bad way because, you know, just before the board of equalization met on Monday, the price of oil actually went negative, which, didn't know was, I didn't know that was possible. And, you know, I'm not an energy reporter. I'm not a business reporter. I can't tell you specifically what that means, but I know that that is really bad for our state. (laughs) Well, we will get into that in the next segment of the podcast. But while you and I are talking, um, I I wanted to ask you about this. We got some specific numbers, like you said, on what those shortfalls will look like at a meeting of the Oklahoma State Board of Equalization on Monday. And the fact that this meeting even took place seemed to be significant. There's been a lot of conflict between the governor and state lawmakers, and the Board of Equalization has kind of been at the center of that. But, you know, like you said, this might be a board that not a lot of people are really familiar with. So, Carmen, can you just briefly tell us what the Board of Equalization is and why its meeting this week was a big deal? Oh, man, you're trying to stump me. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe what what the board, just what the board does, because, I mean, the fact that they were the ones who have to certify this revenue shortfall, that really seemed to be a hook and this conflict that the governor has had with state lawmakers. Yeah, so um, the Board of Equalization could best be described as maybe like a, a budget board for the state. I mean, they over, in a way, they sort of oversee state finances. And it's chaired by the governor. And then vice chair is Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell. And then really all the head honchos at the state level are on the board. Superintendent Hoffmeister, Attorney General Mike Hunter, um, Treasurer Randy McDaniel. Um, And the board really only meets like three or four times a year. And their only thing is that they sort of certify budget numbers that are given to them. And that helps lawmakers build a budget. As for the controversial part, Um, About a week ago, the governor and state lawmakers got into a spat over the the plan to fill the current revenue shortfall, right? So legislators came back for one day and they passed three bills to basically allocate money to fill that fill that budget gap of about 416 million now, but it could be more by the end of the year. And so Governor Kevin Stitt says that they, in those bills, they funded everything for state government except for his digital transformation fund for the last three months of the year. And so he was supposed to get $15 million this year in this digital transformation fund. If the last three months of the year weren't funded, that'd be, you know, less than, that'd be about $3 million. And so he got mad at state lawmakers 
more specifically House leadership, because he says that they, um, you know, were the ones behind this, um, cutting this fund out of basically what is getting funded through the rainy day funds. Um, so anyways, this, then they essentially took him to court, but they never got to court because they sued him if that would be the correct term, they basically asked the Oklahoma Supreme Court to intervene in this situation. And they basically said, okay, Oklahoma Supreme Court, the governor has said there's a revenue shortfall. State agencies have said there's a revenue shortfall. But we can't appropriate this money unless the Board of Equalization specifically meets to certify that there's a revenue shortfall. So just because they passed the legislation and it went into effect, even though the governor didn't sign it, doesn't mean that it that any money could move from state accounts. And so when the board met on Monday, that was sort of the final straw that seemed to stave off any anybody having to go to the Supreme Court and make arguments about this. But that now means that, okay, lawmakers can fill those budget gaps. So at the end of the day, the, the state lawmakers ultimately win the day? Or did the governor get his digital transformation fund funded like he wanted it to? Okay, so good question. I, You know, you could look at it and say that, yes, the lawmakers did win. Um, no, Governor Stitt did not get his digital transformation fund funded. and But in a way, they're all losing, right? Like, the, if you look at... If you look ahead to next year, the fact that the state might be out $1.3 billion, might be down $1.3 billion, and here they were arguing over potentially $3 million for a digital transformation fund that I assure you will struggle to get funded next year when the governor is saying, oh, we're going to have to you know, cut state agencies and we're going to have to cut funding here to even just survive. Like it kind of puts it all into perspective. Like, what were they really arguing about, you know? And I think it's, I think it's more just like a power struggle thing, right? Like, the lawmakers want to flex on the governor, and the governor wants to be the chief executive, and so he flexes on the legislators. And and then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, let's put this in perspective, and we have bigger problems here. Right, for sure. So you started to to touch on our our financial future once again, and and I'm curious, how is the Oklahoma legislature supposed to fund state agencies and public services with these revenue shortfalls that could stretch across multiple fiscal years? Yeah, um, so so they use some state reserves, some state savings to fill the revenue shortfall this year. There will still be some let's say about um, a half a billion dollars uh, to fund, you know, to fill in some gaps next year. But then um, the governor said that even with those savings, um, there might be cuts of up to 7.5%. And it wasn't clear if that was across all state agencies or if that's just cutting the budget by 7.5%. He specifically said, you know, well, we want to we want to protect core services, which when folks say core services, they usually mean education, healthcare, things like that. Um, but it's, you know, when everybody has to cut 7.5% or most folks have to, most agencies have to cut 7.5%, it's hard to protect those core services. And as Democrats have pointed out, um, this is a point in time where 
Oklahomans will need those services more than ever. I mean, if you just think about the sheer number of people who are applying for unemployment right now, it's it's a lot, and it's m- more than the state anticipated. Um, the one thing I will note is that a lot of the COVID-related stuff, you know, what the state is spending on PPE or um, what they're spending to get test kits um, or bring in employees to work overtime or whatever, you know, that sort of stuff will almost certainly be covered by federal dollars that um, will be allocated to help states weather this crisis. But it isn't clear yet if the federal aid can be used to to basically shore up budgets that have because um, we're not the only state that has this problem. All the states are basically, their state budgets are shattered from this situation. So, Yeah, good to know, Carmen. And at the end of the day, how long are state officials saying it could be before Oklahoma comes out the other side of this budget situation? And what's it going to take for us to even do that? Yeah, it's... Um, this is anticipated to go into fiscal year 2022, so next year's fiscal year 2021, um, and so fiscal year 2022 would end, you know, basically two years from now. Um, and you know, looking specifically at the oil and gas industry, the head of the Oklahoma Tax Commission said um, before the end of this fiscal year, so in the next two months, they expect we will lose between eight and 10,000 more oil and natural gas jobs here in Oklahoma, and that those jobs will not recover until basically the end of fiscal year 21 or maybe early fiscal year 2022. So that's sort of a good benchmark. And um, with the high numbers of unemployment, it just takes longer to recover. And the thing is that experts say that Oklahoma's economy recovers slower than other states' economies. And I think we saw that after the Great Recession, that it just took us longer as a state to sort of bounce back. And is that just because we're dependent on on one particular industry that's pretty boom or bust? Yeah, that's a big part of it, that it's, um, you know, so reliant on oil and gas and our economy isn't near as diversified as some other states. Gotcha. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now I have a special guest, someone who's never been on the podcast before, the Oklahoman's managing editor, Don Mikoy. Don specially agreed to come on the podcast to talk about oil industry woes, which have gotten even worse this week. Um, Don, you covered the business world for a number of years as a reporter and an editor. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me. And it's nice of you to say a number of years. That's uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, Don, first I want to talk about the biggest development, which is the price of a barrel of oil dropping to minus $37 this week, the lowest price in U.S. history. Can you tell us what brought us to this historic moment? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, like a lot of things these days, it was a perfect storm. Uh, you know, we had already low, low oil prices uh, because demand has just fallen off a cliff. I mean, myself, for instance, in the last five weeks, I've put 10 gallons of gas in my car. And in the old world, uh, sometimes in five days, I would put 10 gallons of gas in my car. So, 
no one's driving and no one's, uh, you know, at work. And so there's no demand. And even with OPEC, Saudi Arabia and Russia agreeing to cut their uh, supplies, it wasn't enough. And the prices just kept falling and falling. Now, what happened where things fell below zero was an unusual situation involving contracts where people buy and sell contracts for the delivery of a certain amount of oil at a specific date out in the future. These are futures contracts. And you have a lot of people in the oil business who use these contracts, but you also have a lot of people who are just traders. They're not in the oil business. They're just doing this to make money. And so they buy and sell contracts. And when the contracts expire, which the latest one expired Tuesday, they have to get rid of them because they don't want the oil. They don't have any place to put it. They can't put it in their backyard or their swimming pool. They don't have access to the industry. So that's what happened at the end of each of these expiring periods. They would sell them to refiners or to oil companies who had storage, and they would get rid of the contracts. Well, nobody wanted the oil because the price was falling precipitously, and nobody had. there's not enough storage right now because there's no demand. So you essentially had the price just continue to fall. And recently, they were allowed in the exchange where these are traded, they had decided that if the price gets close enough to zero, we're going to let it keep going. It used to be you couldn't go below zero. And they said, you know, other contracts trade below zero. So they said, we're going to let this one trade below zero. And it just kept going and going and going until finally it got to minus $35 a barrel. Because... You know, for some of these people who held these contracts, they simply could not take delivery of the oil. And that's what you have to do. So that's what happened, essentially. Okay. So when the price of oil goes into the negatives, does that mean that whoever's hanging on to these contracts, does that mean that they're actually going to pay whomever is willing to take that contract off their hands? Is that what that means? Yes. They have to pay people to take the contract. And then those people will get the oil. Uh, and, and in fact, I've read of some situations where companies that produce oil, what they're able to do is to get someone to pay them to take the contract. They use the oil they've already got in the ground to fulfill that contract. And that's their delivery. And then they can buy another futures contract in the future and get paid $30 in maybe two or three months to deliver that oil and they make 60 bucks on a barrel of oil that's only really worth about $15 in today's market. So uh, there, there have been some advantages. Every time there's a trade, somebody wins and somebody loses. And there are some winners in this situation. Even if the winnings are more marginal than in the past, right? <laughs> exactly. Because nobody in the oil business right now is doing well. Nobody. Right. Don, Oklahoma seems to play an interesting role in in this national uh, precipitous drop, like you said, because Oklahoma is a major storage center for oil. So could you talk about the storage space in Oklahoma and how that seems to have been a big signal of how remarkable this situation is becoming? Yeah, the, the largest commercial storage hub in the United States is in Cushing, Oklahoma. And in fact, when you see a spot price for oil, that is oil that's not being sold as in these futures contract. But what you pay today for the price of oil, that price for West Texas Intermediate crude oil is set in Cushing, Oklahoma. So, and there, and Cushing is dotted with 
thousands of, of storage uh, facilities. Uh, it's a remarkable place. And part of the issue is, as the prices have fallen, people don't want to sell their oil at these prices because it's not profitable. So they want to they want to hang on to it. And Cushing is filling up. And in fact, it's it's probably very difficult to get storage at Cushing right now because what may be available, and we never really know for sure. It's kind of an industry secret how much storage is available at Cushing. Um, it is already been has already been spoken for. People have been buying the storage, the ability to put oil there. So, uh, yeah, Cushing is a really big deal. In fact, I, I'll tell you one story that I learned years ago. Because it's so hard to know how much oil is being stored at Cushing, there are airplanes that fly over Cushing and take pictures because there are there's a cover on top of each of those huge uh, storage uh, uh, bins, and you can tell from the shadows how full it is, and they'll take pictures of them and then evaluate the shadows to see how many of them are full, and that actually helps determine what the prices might could be or where, where the opportunities are to invest on those kinds of things. Sounds like a James Bond novel right now. Um, <laughs> so oil prices have had some major drops in the past two months with the coronavirus pandemic on top of an international price war, which has since been resolved. I thought outcomes were supposed to improve, though, when countries around the world, like you said, they agreed last week to cut oil production. So what impact was that production cut expected to have? And, and why have prices dropped so low in spite of that? Well, you had OPEC and Russia jacked up their production, and that made the prices drop precipitously. And then the COVID uh, situation, which had already started, really went global. And everyone, I mean, it's not just you and me that are staying home. It's people all around the world. So uh, a 10% cut, which I think is essentially what OPEC said they were going to do in supply, wasn't going to fill that gap to the to the far far bigger decrease in demand that has occurred. Uh, so you've just got way too much oil in the world, and oil's a global market. So the prices have just fallen off everywhere. Now we haven't seen this kind of phenomenon in other countries that we saw here with the negative prices. But like I said, that was just a technical thing. Oil doesn't trade that way in other parts of the world. But even when you look at a lot of people are looking at the next month's contract to see what maybe the real price of oil should be. And even that has fallen, I think, below $15. Anything I say is going to be outdated in about 10 minutes. But right now, a June contract for, for West Texas Intermediate Crude, I think, is trading for less than $15. So it, there's just no demand right now. Right. And just for some context, how much was a uh, a price of a barrel of oil trading two or three months ago? Well, uh, before, I mean, it hadn't been all that long that we were at fifty and sixty dollars a barrel, and Oklahoma oil companies were doing quite well. They they can be profitable easily at those levels, uh, and then it slipped down, you know, in the forties, and it's just it's just continued. There's just been a a series of things, OPEC and COVID, and just the markets have just continued to just bury that price. Right. And now experts in the energy field are saying that it could amount to up to 10,000 in lost oil industry jobs. Um, You have this glut of oil, so much of it that we don't even have a place to put it or or, or approaching that point. Um, 
how long would this have such a disastrous financial impact into the future? I mean, how many months or years ahead are we going to be feeling the effects of this? This is probably going to last for quite some time uh, because our our companies here and companies all across the United States, they're just they're not drilling anymore. There's no reason to drill. If it costs you money to produce your product, uh, then it's better to just get nothing than to sell things at a loss. So you're shutting down these rigs and that, that, you know, that eliminates all the jobs out in the oil patch. Uh, and then you've got all the people in corporate, you know, how many, how many landmen do you need? How many uh, ge- uh, geologists do you need if you're not going to explore? So it's really a matter of, of you know, shutting things down as much as they can. Uh, and, and we are going to see a lot of job losses. Now, I will say oil can the oil business has always been a boom and bust business. And as recently as, you know, five, six years ago, we saw something similar to this. And there was a huge contraction in the industry. And they came out of it by learning to be much more efficient at producing oil and cheaper oil could be profitable for them, but not at these levels. But they're used to these kind of contractions in the industry. It's painful but they've been through this before. Right, right, for sure. And and a topic that we've talked about, not you and I, but this podcast has discussed before is how critical the energy industry is to our state government revenue. Um, I, I talked about this with Carmen uh, as well today. And so could you talk about how this most recent price drop could translate into some serious budget shortfalls in Oklahoma? Oh, sure. It's, you know, because... Uh, producing wells where they're getting this tax income and it's a it's a significant amount of tax that goes to the state uh, a lot of companies are going to go back and they're going to shut in these wells and stop producing oil so the production numbers are going to have to go down because there's no market for it and and even though uh, sometimes when you when you stop a well you restart it you may not get the same kind of production you had before uh, it's still it, when it's costing you money to produce something, then you'd rather not produce it. So, so yeah, the production's going to go down pretty quickly. All right, Don. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week. I appreciate your expertise. Hey, it was my pleasure. Have a good day. Thanks for joining me this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.